Good morning, good morning. If I could get everyone to return to their seat. As you're returning to your seat, uh, make sure that um, you have a bulletin. Obviously, you don't have a bulletin and you're lost in this church. That's just the way it is. But make sure you have a bulletin with one of the bulletin inserts. Um, the bulletin insert today does not include the entirety of, of the Scripture passage we'll be studying today. Um, that's just because we're reading a narrative that has a lot in it and we don't have space for an outline and all that stuff. But I, I tried to include in our bulletin insert the kind of the key verses that I'm going to be touching on and highlighting on. It's just really, if anything, it's just an encouragement um, to bring your Bible or bring your phone that has the Bible. I think we also have phones. If you don't have a Bible, there's a great app called the ESV app online. It's, I think it's ESV Bible app. Um, fantastic app just to have a Bible on your hand. You can get to verses so fast. Um, but we're going to be studying um, Ruth chapter 2 this morning as we continue in our study of this Old Testament book. I want to really just remind us how vital it is to study the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation of our faith. And the better we understand the Old Testament, the better we understand our faith. And the Old Testament is old, and therefore it can be hard to kind of access and understand. And that's where the book of Ruth helps us. The book of Ruth is very accessible. It's full of life and um, a storyline that's engaging. And so we're going to be looking at this story. But what I love about this story in particular is that this story, though being short, is a vital piece in God's redemptive history. This story describes the redemption of a family from its sin and death, as is the case with Naomi. This story describes the redemption of a Boabite woman from her idolatrous practices and her ways, as is the case with Ruth. This story even describes the redemption of God's people from their rulerless and lawless ways, as is the case with the genealogy located at the back of the book, which points to Israel's greatest king, David. But perhaps more importantly, this small story helps us to understand, to understand the redemption of us all. And so this morning we're going to continue to unravel the beautiful story of God's redemption in this small story by looking at Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1-13. through 13. And so by way of reminder before we jump into this, this is the part in the story where Naomi and Ruth are beginning their new life in the area of Bethlehem. So with that being said, hear now the reading of God's Word from Ruth 2, 1-13. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean, among the sh- glean, glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, 
Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or lead this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink with the young, what, the young, what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let me pray. Oh Lord, as we come to your word, we come with all sorts of emotions. We come from different places, some of gratefulness, some of joy, but some of sorrow and some of difficulty. Regardless of where we come, we ask for you to meet us in this place. More than anything, Lord, we long to experience the sweet relief you offer to us by your grace. So would you bring that grace to us this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to look at three significant encounters that Ruth has in this chapter. It is my hope that in looking at these three significant encounters, that all of us will walk out of this room today experiencing the very sweet relief that Ruth did by the end of our passage. And so for that to happen, I want to just jump right into my message. And so therefore, the first significant encounter that Ruth has is her encounter with anxiety. Ruth has an encounter with anxiety. Anxiety and stress are very real to all of us. One of the things as a pastor, as I go and as I hang out with you guys and talk and even ask, how can I pray for you? One of the most constant themes in your life, and I'll even say it in my life, is the constant reality of anxiety in our life. Anxiety, for those unfamiliar with the exact term, is this uneasy feeling that we get when we realize we're out of control and we want control. It is always a result of uncontrol. And so what's interesting about anxiety is that we really mask it. We do a fantastic job of masking it. We walk around, we got it all together. My favorite thing right now is this, the Instagram, like, it's, forgive me. It's this, I'm, my life is so messy, but yet it's a picture of a person who's like perfectly messy. And you're like, are you really messy? But it's like, it's like this messy brokenness. And it's like, this is just adding to our anxiety. But we mask our anxiety. We are all just so riddled with anxiety and it's so largely unseen. Do you struggle with anxiety? Do you know it? Is it like a python wrapping around your soul and squeezing you and squeezing the life out of you? I know it. I've experienced this tremendously over the last month. You might not even see it in me. Some of you did. 
Anxiety can't be seen. And it's the same way in this chapter with Ruth. How in the world does Ruth encounter anxiety? How is anxiety a significant encounter that Ruth has in this passage? Well, just like we can't see it, I want to unveil the anxiety that Ruth experiences by acknowledging two very common sources of anxiety. And Ruth certainly is of this. The two most common ways in which Ruth experiences anxiety, and what I'm bringing to your reality, is anxiety shamed by uh, anxiety sh- uh, fueled by shame, and anxiety fueled by fear. Now, how in the world does does Ruth have anxiety fueled by shame? Well, we have to mention that Ruth is a Moabite woman now living in a land in the land of Bethlehem, which was the heart of Israel. Moabites were despised by Jews, those that occupied the land of Israel. And so for a Moabite woman, someone who would be seen as an idolatrous woman, someone who would be seen as coming from a people who are incestuous and and child sacrificing, here she is, she's beginning her life in this land that despises Moabite women. She's beginning her new life. Don't you think she would know, I'm a Moabite. You could even hear it in the way that the, the reaper, the head of the reapers described it. She's that Moabite woman that came back with Naomi. One of the things about shame that, that we often don't think about is this, it's this idea that we're not enough. And so Naomi, no doubt, was saying as she's walking into this new land that she doesn't know anything, doesn't know the customs. She probably looks different. She probably, she probably talked the language, but the way she talks the language is far different than the way that the people of Israel talk. And so she might have had an accent. She might have looked different. She might have dressed different. She stood out. And so she was very cognizant of the fact that she's a Moabite woman amongst the people of Israel. And that reality was fueling her anxiety. It's saying, you're not a Jew. You're a Moabite. You're a nobody. Don't you think Ruth would have carried that anxiety into the fields the morning she went out? Certainly. But I think she carried more than just the shame of being in a Moabite. I think she, she carried some shame brought upon her by her mother-in-law, Naomi. Some of you that are married certainly know the difficulties the in-laws present. You love them, you care for them, you know it. But you know the in-laws can be a difficult challenge. I don't think it changed however many years ago this was. I love the story, and I don't, actually I don't love it, I hate it, for Ruth. But it's a really impactful story that when Naomi comes back into Bethlehem after they come back from Moab, they say, this is Naomi. And she says, "Ah, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Marah, bitter. And she said, I left full, but I've come back empty. When she said those words, I've come back empty, who is standing behind her? It's Ruth. The one who said, I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. I am connected to you. And yet, Naomi is looking at her and says, I am empty. Think about the shame that Ruth would have felt. I mean, you can kind of picture what she would have done when she heard those words out of Naomi's mouth. You could see her head drop. Like, really? I'm nothing. And so she has this shame of being a Moabite woman. She has this shame that her mother-in-law has placed on her and that she is nothing. But more than that, she's a barren woman. 
A barren woman was a woman of no value in this period of time. This is a patriarchal society. And the way that women found value was that they had children. And we know from chapter 1 that Ruth had no children. And her husband had died. And of course she's thinking, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my body? Some of you who have attempted to have children or experienced infertility, you know the shame of being barren. Ruth knew this shame as well. It's like a thousand pound weight on her. She's a Moabite. She's nothing to her mother-in-law. She's barren. But then the fourth thing, she's poor. She's poor. Why do we know, how do we know she's poor? Well, it's what she does. When she says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor, we know that this is an act that the poor of the Israels would do. You see, the, the Israel law had this, had this set up where the, the fields would be reaped. That means that they would be, the, the wheat or the barley would be taken off of all the things, but that which was left over, the poor could go in and, and get them for themselves so that they might feed themselves. In some ways, this is a way of saying, this is a woman who is, who is standing on the side of the road asking for money. I, I've not been poor myself, but I know that it takes a lot of courage to stand on the side of the road to ask for help. Why? Because everyone who goes by perhaps has the potential to cast judgment on you. That person doesn't work hard. That person doesn't have a job. And it's the same thing for those who would go glean in the fields after the harvest, like Ruth was doing. She's opening herself up to the shame of being that person that's not working hard. She's opening up herself to be that person who people just go, that person just get a husband. So, do you see the anxiety that Ruth is bringing within her into the field that has been fueled by shame? I mean, it is heavy on her. But there's another side of this fueling anxiety. That's the anxiety that comes from fear. Her, her, her anxiety is not just fueled by shame, it's, it's fueled by fear. And what are the ways in which she is afraid? Well, first, she's afraid of starving. I mean, she and Naomi had just come back into Bethlehem. They have nothing except the need to eat. <laughs> and so... This is what causes Ruth to get up and say, I've got to do something about this. I'm going to go glean in the fields for what is left over. I'm afraid of going hungry. Many of us in this room don't know what it's like to be hungry. Uh, um, and thanks be to God that that's the case. But those that have experienced it know it is the only thing, when they go hungry, it's the only thing that they can think about. I need food. I need food. I need food. This is an anxiety that she's feeling. And certainly, the fear of starving is related to the fear of death. Death can be a constant source of anxiety, which is certainly the result of starving. But she's not just afraid of starving. She's also afraid of being abused, mistreated, or killed. I, I love observing um, women and the way that they um, do this because it's very, sometimes it's very different from a man. So guys, if you were to park in a parking garage at night, how afraid would you be to walk in that garage by yourself? I mean, some might be afraid. But most women are deathly afraid of walking in to a parking garage in the middle of the night. It's just not something you do. 
Um, it's scary. People can jump out from the side of, of, of cars and who knows what. It's a scary thing, especially like on college campuses. It's the same thing for Ruth when she goes into the field. Fields were not places that are very um, um, safe, per se. Ruth would have been opening herself up to much assault. She would have been so vulnerable. She could have been assaulted and, and had her mouth covered and no one would have known a thing and no one would have believed anything she said. This is why Boaz eventually said, Have I not instructed my men to not harm you? This is because it's a thing that happens during this time. And she knows it. She knows that as she goes into the field, she's opening herself up to assault, being killed, being abused. That's on her mind. And of course, also on her mind is, what's the future hold for me? What do I have left? Is my life going to be just gathering barley and wheat? I mean, I'm not a farmer, but I know that there's only seasons, there's only a few seasons in which you can harvest food. I mean, once the, the crop is picked, it's done. So what does she have? She has a fear of the future. Significance, meaning. I mean, all of these things, these fears are just pressing down on Ruth. Fear and shame. And she's walking into these fields burdened by anxiety. Do you know the burden of anxiety? I know you do. I know that you have this voice in your mind that says you're not enough. You're not measuring up. You're a nobody. You're a nothing. Whatever that might be. And shame is just fueling the anxiety of your life. I know you are. You're experiencing that. I know you're experiencing the anxiety of fear in your life. And it is it is like that python. It is wrapping around your life and your soul. I know it is. Because I know it myself. And the question that I have for you is, do you want to get out of that python hold? Do you want to experience the sweet relief that is possible from your anxiety? Do you? I know you do. The question for all of us is, how do we find the sweet relief from the anxiety that can put such a stranglehold on me? Oh, I, let me just, this is just a little, little, I know that there are some great ways medicinally that we can experience relief from anxiety. I know that. But what I'm about to say, perhaps is a little controversial, that we can experience relief from our anxiety through the second encounter that Ruth has in this chapter. What is that second encounter that Ruth experiences? Well, it's the encounter of grace. It is of the, I, I'm telling you, you can experience relief from your anxiety through the grace of God. God has the power to rip the python that is anxiety off of you that you might live in the freedom that you were meant to live in. Freedom from anxiety. Freedom from shame. Freedom from fear. God has the power to do that. And Ruth experienced it herself right here in these words. Grace is a beautiful thing. Let me tell you this. Grace is a beautiful thing. But grace is rarely experienced. 
The church will hold grace up high. The world will hold grace up on high. But oftentimes, the church and the world do not give grace. Many of us come from religious backgrounds in which grace was told, but grace wasn't experienced. That even in the church, place where we value grace was not experienced. And therefore, the stranglehold of anxiety has us a lot. In fact, I would say that there are a lot of people that are held tight by anxiety in the church. And the reason is because they really haven't experienced grace. Grace is not this thing that says, yeah, do whatever you like. Grace is not something that says, you better do everything right. Grace is far different. Grace is God's kindness without... Uh, or without dissing the standards that are necessary. Here, here's one of the ways in which the world says, there's, here's grace, here's grace. The, the, especially as it results, uh, revolves around shame. Shame says that you aren't enough. That's this voice in our head and we, we struggle with this. But people will come side and say, you are enough. You are enough. And it's not based on any standard other than just the standard of saying you are enough. And one of the ways in which, which people, they try to believe that I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough, but then it gets smacked in their face, especially with their jobs. You know, a boss comes to a person who's really struggling with shame and like, oh, I can't do my job, I'm not enough. And the boss rightly will look at you and says, you're fired. <laughs> but I'm enough. Yeah, you weren't enough for this job. But I'm enough. No, you weren't enough for this job. That's why you need to look for a new one. You see, that, that offering of you are enough without, by, by dismissing the standards leaves you nothing. Grace is something far more different. It acknowledges the standard, but it meets you, it takes you to that standard. Ruth gets to experience this grace. And it's the very grace that I want you to experience today. Well, how does Ruth have an encounter with grace? Well, she has an encounter with grace through Boaz. Boaz. We see this in verse 8. Boaz comes to Ruth after finding out who she was. And look at the first words that Boaz says to Ruth. I think these are incredibly power, powerful. What does he say? He says, now listen, my daughter. Listen, my daughter. Why would Boaz be calling Ruth his daughter? What is going on in this situation? Why is Boaz calling her his daughter? Who is, who is Ruth again? She's a Moabite woman. She, she has no relation to the, to the tribe of Israel, to the people of Israel. Yet, Boaz, who's never met her, she's a Moabite, says, My daughter. And here he is. He's meeting her in the midst of her, her voice. You're not enough. You're, you're, you're a Moabite woman. You're, you're, you're off. Get out of here. This is her mind. And he's saying to her, my daughter. And he's offering her in this one statement a sense of belonging, a sense of connection, a sense of being a part of the community of Israel now. My daughter. One of the things about shame that we all experience is, is we're not enough. But here, Boaz says, you are now a part of the tribe of Israel and you're my daughter. I mean, wouldn't we experience incredible relief if we felt like we finally belonged where we shouldn't belong? 
wouldn't we experience the relief? And here is Boaz extending that relief to Ruth right here, my daughter. Those are some powerful, graceful words. She didn't deserve it. She's a Moabite. And yet he, he extends some paternal affection onto her. But his grace doesn't stop with just a paternal affection. No, it continues on. Look at what he says in the next sentence. Do not go to the glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. What is, what is Boaz doing? How is Boaz being gracious to her in this? Well, he's giving her a purpose in life. She's no longer a gleaner. She's no longer to go after all the women have picked from the, from the barley leaves and from the wheat. She's no longer doing that. She's to go right with them. And she's not to look on the ground for the, the clippings that fell on the ground. She's to look at this. To look at, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Verse 9. And go after them. He's giving her purpose. Now you've got a job. You don't have to be a poor woman anymore. You're not at the bottom of the social stratosphere. You are now one of mine. And you have a purpose. We need a purpose in life. We don't need to just spin our wheels. And so when we have that purpose, oh, it is life-giving. And this purpose is what Ruth experienced. What a gracious offer of Boaz to Ruth to give her that purpose. But His grace continues on. Not only does He give her paternal affection, not only does He give her a purpose, but then He protects her. Look at what He says right after He gave her a purpose. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? The fear that was fueling her anxiety is now met by Boaz in his words, Have I not commanded my men to not touch you? No longer when she's in the field picking the wheat off of the, off of the stalk is she looking over her shoulder wondering if there's going to be someone who assaults her. Now she knows if that person assaults her, Boaz is coming down on her. And it's freeing her up. It's a beautiful thing. And it's freeing her to pursue the very purpose that Boaz has given to her. To pursue the provision for her family. But His grace continues. It continues. Look at what he says. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Here he provides for her strength in the midst of her purpose of providing for her family by, by reaping the harvest. He says, when you're thirsty, go be with my men, the servants. I want to provide for you. We'll see next week that not only does He provide for her strength in the immediate, but He provides for her family long term. And it is a beautiful picture of grace being extended to someone who didn't deserve it. Here's grace being extended to someone who didn't deserve it. She's a Moabite. She's of an, of an incestuous, idolatrous people. And yet grace was being extended to her. What happens when we experience grace? I'll tell you what happens. It's the same thing that happened to Ruth. When we really experience grace, you'll ask why. When you experience grace, the very first thing that will come to your mind is why in the world did I deserve such a gift such as this? 
I don't deserve grace. That's when you know you experienced grace. And this is what Ruth says. Look what she says in the middle of uh, verse 10. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? You want to know how you experience grace? Or you know you've experienced grace? You ask why. Why, oh God, have you been so gracious to me? I am undeserving of this. I'm a sinner. I've I've thumbed my nose at you. I've run from you. And yet you have been constant in your grace and your favor and your kindness to me. Why? Why would you do this? Of course, Boaz answers her. Boaz answers her immediately. And he says this. It's not in your bulletin. He says, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What is the why? What is ultimately the why of our grace? What is the why for grace? I think it's this. Anyone who takes refuge under the wings of the Lord. Those that entrust themselves to God experience the grace of God. We might be tempted to read in Boaz's statements that because Ruth did good and did right, following all those things of taking care of Naomi and thumbing her nose at Moab and leaving her father and mother, This is the way we get grace. This is often the way that the church says you get grace. If you just do what you're supposed to do, God will be good to you and those sorts of things. But that is not true. Those who receive and experience grace are those that entrust themselves to the refuge of the Lord. It is only by faith we experience grace. It is only through trust that we experience grace. Not by works, but by faith. But you might say to me, okay, okay. I've never experienced grace, but I've never had a Boaz in my life. I've never had someone who's come to me and extended this wonderful grace in the midst of of my anxiety. No one has ever relieved my shame. No one has ever offered me the, the, the freedom from the fear that is so constant in my life. This python that's wrapped around me is so tight, I've not experienced it. I mean, if I had a Boaz, okay, sure. I might experience that. But I've never experienced a Boaz. What do you say about that, Dan? Here's what I'll tell you. We do have a Boaz. We do have a Boaz. One of the things I told you about is that this picture, this story of Ruth is a, is a picture of the redemption of us all. Ultimately, it will reveal the redemption that comes through Boaz's son. Who is Boaz's son? It's Jesus. You get to the end of Ruth 4 and you see the genealogy of David. This is the story of how David became the king of Israel. You get to 2 Samuel 7 where David is king and you see God making a covenant with him saying, forever you will have someone from your family on the throne and he will be king. You get to Matthew and you see the genealogy of Jesus. And what are you reading? You're reading the story of Boaz's son through David. The church is here to proclaim to you, you do have a Boaz who extends grace to you in the midst of the anxiety that you feel. 
you do have a Boaz who extends paternal affection to you saying, my daughter, not because of anything you've done, but because you've entrusted yourself to the Lord. You do have a Boaz who provides for you strength and character and righteousness. You do have a Boaz. You have a Boaz who's going to protect you. He says in Romans 8, nothing can happen to you. When we say the Almighty God, that means that God is more mighty than anything else. And this God, this Jesus, said to you, I'm going to protect you. Don't worry about looking over your shoulder. I'm the king. And ain't nobody messing with me. You mess with, me, mess with one of mine, you're messing with me. And you don't want that to happen. You see, this story, when we unpack it and see it from a... From, whoa! This is the redemption. And grace, the grace offered to us by faith in Jesus is the very thing that takes a machete to the python wrapped around our soul and whops it. You don't have to worry about not measuring up anymore. Because in Jesus, you are enough. You don't have to worry about dying because in Jesus, He's conquered the grave. When we encounter grace, the machete goes to the python of anxiety of our lives and the snake falls dead. That's what happened to Ruth. I told you that there's three encounters, significant encounters, and the last one is probably the shortest of the encounters that I'm going to opine on. But the third encounter is helpful for us, I think, especially in regards to whether or not we've experienced grace. And the third encounter that Ruth has is an encounter with gratitude. An encounter with gratitude. After Boaz extended grace to Ruth, she continues to speak to Boaz. And we see this in verse 13. And she says this, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. When grace is extended to us, it does cause us to ask why. But when grace is received, we experience the sweet relief which is then manifested by gratitude. Let me say that again. When grace is extended to us, it may cause us, it will cause us to ask why. But when we receive it, we experience the sweet relief that grace brings. And this is manifested in gratitude. This is what Ruth experienced in verse 13. Gratitude. She had an encounter with gratitude. I tell my kids all the time, what do you say to that person who just gave you a donut? Thank you. Right? Gratitude should not be something that is commanded. Gratitude should be something that just spurs up out of our heart and overflows. It shouldn't be something that I say, come, let us give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Come on, let's go, let's give thanks. No. Come! Let us give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His mercy endures forever. Do you not see this mercy? This, this graceful mercy to us. Come! It's amazing! That, my friends, is gratitude. And let me ask you this question. Simply, this is it. Have you experienced the gratitude? Has your heart welled up 
with thanksgiving to God for His grace. It's just a good test. Because when we experience grace, the natural response is gratitude, which we see in Ruth. And the question for you is, have you experienced it? And if you haven't, that's okay. If you have not experienced the gratitude that comes as a result of His grace, that's okay. I think the church is often a place void of gratitude and joy because it is a place void of grace. But we must ask ourselves, are we grateful for all that we've received? If we are not, what we need to do is go back to God. Do I understand His grace? Do I understand what He has given to me? Do I understand my sin and what I really am? Or am I just stuffing all of this away? Am I just trying to ignore uh, the shame, the fear, and just trying to make it and trying to fight it and make it on my own? I've not experienced gratitude. Okay, I've got to figure out why. And so if you have not, good, I'm glad you're here. It's my hope and my prayer that this is a place of grace, that you would experience it, you'd ask questions about God, about yourself, about all of these things, because I want you to get to the place where after experience grace, you experience gratitude. Anxiety cannot stand in the presence of gratitude. My friends, in the midst of your anxiety that you experience, I know you do, let me remind you, through the grace of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, you can be relieved of that anxiety. And you can be relieved because He extends grace to you through His Son, who gave up His perfect life for your imperfect life, who died the death you deserved in place of you, and offers you grace, a life lived that you didn't deserve, excuse me, that you couldn't live, and a death you deserved in place of you. There is sweet relief in Jesus. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden and labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. May you find the sweet relief of Jesus today. Let me pray. Our gracious Lord, I give thanks to You for the grace extended to us undeserving people. Lord, we have thumbed our nose at You. We have run from You. We have even been held um, by our world trying to measure up to what looks beautiful and what looks right or what oh, all of this stuff. And like John prayed for us this morning or, or, or led into the confession, we ask that we just put all of this on at Your feet that we might experience Your grace. Your love for us is unbelievable. It's deep and it's wide. We thank You for that. Bring us the sweet relief that Your love brings. Amen.